open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. When I was growing up, my youth pastor's name was Hank, and his favorite musician was Bob Dylan. Now, we didn't sing a lot of Bob Dylan songs in our youth ministry, but he just liked Bob Dylan. I think for about 15 minutes, Bob Dylan claimed to be a Christian. I hadn't kept up with him since then, so I don't know where he is right now. He had a song during that phase called You Gotta Serve Somebody. Anybody remember that song? I'm not going to sing it for you, although I almost could. Because Bob Dylan's one of those kind, kind of singers that gives guys like me hope, you know. The chorus went like this, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. So the question for this morning is, who are you serving? Who is your master today? And Paul, in chapter 6 of Romans, really unpacks two options. If you serve the devil and you serve sin, it leads to death. If you serve the Lord and obey Him, it leads to righteousness. And so I've titled this, The Death of Death, because Paul asked a question. In fact, he asked it a couple of different times in this passage. Let me start reading verse 1 through 11, just as we begin to unpack this passage this morning. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin. Once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So here's the question that Paul asked to this, I guess, imaginary person, although Paul asked it because apparently it was an issue in the church at Rome. And I think really if you read his other letters, this was an issue throughout the, the region that he writes to. Coming right out of chapter 5, which, again, remember, there weren't, when Paul wrote this, it was a letter. He didn't write chapters and said, you know, read this one on Monday, read this one on Tuesday. It was a letter. They read the whole thing, and so you've got to get the context. He has just said that, that because of grace, that grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul's teaching about grace. And so he, he addresses this person that may not understand grace. In fact, quite honestly, if we don't preach grace to the point that it makes some people a little uncomfortable, we probably hadn't gotten grace. I think some people look at grace and hear it preached and think, well, hey, if that's the deal, if God gives us grace, then 
I guess I can do anything I want to. Well, here's the problem. I don't think Paul's writing that to believers primarily. I think he's writing it to critics that are stepping back and saying, wait a minute, Paul, we've heard you talk about God. We've heard you talk about this conversion that you've had in Christ. But you're now preaching grace. And and keep in mind, the people he's writing to, many of them have been brought up on the law. And you're going to hear that unpacked a little bit more in chapter 6 of Romans. But here's what they're saying. I think they're looking back and saying, wait a minute, Paul. If, you know, we, who, we, we kind of think we're achieving righteousness through the law. If we really buy into this grace thing, then what does that mean? Does that mean we can do anything we want to so that grace has to increase that much more? Are we doing God a favor by sinning so that grace can be more prevalent? And Paul has used this phrase before, but he says, may it never be. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? He's used this earlier in the, in the book of Romans, but it's literally the most powerful phrase to repudiate what he's just asked. A thousand times no. Should we continue to sin? In other words, intentional, willful pattern of sin. Now, I'm going to explain this a little bit more into the passage. Does this mean that a Christian will never sin? No, it doesn't mean that. There's still times in our Christian life that we mess up. It means this. It means the habit of your life. It means continual pattern of your life. In fact, I put it this way. If you are continually in the same habit and pattern of sin that you were before you made a profession of faith, you need to question the profession of faith. Are you really a follower of Jesus Christ? Why? Because God disciplines those whom He loves. If you're living the kind of life where you're just sinning and never experiencing God convicting you of that sin, then there's a problem there. You can claim all you want to that you believe in God, but if it hasn't impacted your life, then you need to ask, have you really come to faith in Christ or not? So Paul says, may it never be. How? And then he asks this question. How is it then, because to Paul, I think this is boggling his mind, he's saying, how is it if you've died to something, can you still live in it? The word for died here and the word for death that he uses is literally the word corpse. So Paul is saying, when you came to Christ, you became a corpse. So how is it that this corpse is now still living the old life? Well, he's not. You're dead to sin. In fact, John puts it this way in 1 John. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 says this, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So what's Paul saying? If the habit of your life, if you are habitually still in that area of sin, and you're just continuing to turn to that, then, then you've never really died to sin. Do you not know? He, he asked this a couple of times throughout Scripture, throughout this passage. A couple of times he says, do you not know? Did you not get it? Do you not even understand what you've been teaching about baptism? Do you not know that if you've been baptized into Christ? And let me explain the word baptism. The word baptism literally means to immerse or submerge to make fully wet or overwhelmed. This morning I'm not here to debate mode of baptism, water baptism. But what Paul is teaching is, if you've been baptized into Christ, 
it wasn't just a sprinkling. We don't sprinkle dirt on a dead person. We bury them. And the inferences he's making here, what he's saying is, you have been buried with Christ. I think I have a picture. You got that, Mike? That's, that's me in the Jordan River a couple years ago baptizing. And one of the things I like about the Jordan River, number one, it is extremely cold in January in the Jordan River. And what I typically do when I baptize somebody, I ask them, what is your profession of faith? And so they declare out loud, Jesus is Lord, or something along those lines. And then I say, because of your profession of faith, I baptize you now in the name of the Father, and I lower him, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Now, one of the things I've discovered is I can't talk <laughs> over there. I have to say everything I want to say before I do this, because once I do, I can't talk for a few minutes or for a few seconds because it, it takes your breath away every time you go under in January in the Jordan River. But the point is they're making a public profession of faith, and then the baptism is a visible demonstration of that. And so what Paul is saying is if you've been baptized, if you've experienced this baptism into Christ, not just the water baptism that was your confession to everybody that you're saved, but understand that you've been baptized into Christ. You've been immersed into Jesus. If that's happened, then you've also been baptized into His death. And Paul's simply saying, do you not know that? And the word to not know means either do you lack information or intelligence. <laughs> Are you just kind of, you can't get this, you can't get wrapped around your little pea brain, or have you never heard this? So Paul is teaching them that you're dead, that you died in Christ and in likeness of His burial. That's the picture you need to have in your mind every day that you live for Christ. I'm dead. I'm buried in Christ. Now, I've been raised. We don't hold them under the water. There's some of them we think maybe need to stay under a little longer till the bubble stop and you know, maybe get their attention. But you don't hold them underwater. No, the other picture is that you're raised to walk in newness of life. So Paul says that just like Christ was raised, we've also been raised to this new, not, new life. In fact, he uses right in this passage, he uses the word new and he uses the word old. And he's not talking about chronology here. The word new literally means a quality of character, not just newness of time. And the word old that he talks about your old self is not just a word for chronological age. It doesn't mean that you're 100. It means old in the sense that you're an antique. You're worn out. You're fit for the scrap heap. And I realize some antiques you know, become valuable and all that, but the word that Paul is using here is one meaning this antique is worn out. It needs to be new. And here's the great thing about your new life in Christ. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross to make you a better person. He died to make you a brand new person. You have not just been remodeled. You've been made brand new. It's like the old structure was torn down and something new built in its place. That's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old things are passed away behold all things are new and what paul is saying by this do you not know that do you not understand that is the big battles right here you come to faith in christ but then how do you live your life the rest of your life you don't have to keep returning to him in a new salvation experience but you've got to understand 
that that meant something. The day you came to faith in Christ, you identified with His death, His burial, His resurrection. In fact, he says, you've been crucified with Christ. There's the word, to impale together with. You've been crucified with Christ. Not just extreme suffering, but death. Jesus Christ suffered on the cross excruciatingly. But folks, it was beyond that. He died on the cross. He was buried. He was dead. He wasn't just asleep. He didn't swoon, as some people teach. He wasn't just unconscious. He was dead. And the power of God resurrected him from the dead. Same things happened to you. You've been crucified with Christ. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. The life I now live in the flesh, I live according to his power that works through me. Galatians 2. So you've been crucified. And here's the cool thing about your crucifixion. Your old body of sin has been done away with. It has been rendered powerless inoperative, ineffective. And here's the struggle. You're thinking, wait a minute, if it's powerless, if it's ineffective, it doesn't have any power anymore in my life, then why do I keep messing up? Part of the reason you keep messing up is it hadn't quite sunk in who you are in Christ, that you're dead in Christ. The other reason, great illustration by uh, uh, an old preacher named Martin, Lord jo- Martin Lloyd-Jones. He tells this illustration of two fields. He says, when you were first born, you were operating in a field. There's a road and there's another field. You were over here in Satan's field. He was your master. He was your ruler. He had to do everything he said. When you come to Christ, you now operate in a new field. You're in God's field. You're now pronounced righteous. Satan will still be over here in this field taunting you, tempting you, cajoling you, hurling abuse at you, trying to get you to jump back into his field. And he can't get you back into his field, but at times he will distract you from the field you're supposed to be in through temptation. Now, you're in God's field, and all Paul is saying is, hey, stay over here and work over here. Don't don't allow Satan to keep throwing you back into your old self. That self is dead. It's been crucified with Christ. Verse 7, death is no longer master over you. It's no longer Lord. It's the Greek word of the phrase kurios, Lord. Death is no longer Lord over you because Christ died once for all. Here's what happened when Christ died. He met sin's legal demand, because you're going to find out in just a minute. The wages of sin is death. So somebody had to die for your sin. Christ met the legal demands, but he also broke sin's power. On the cross. He died once for all. What does that mean? He doesn't ever have to repeat it. Throughout the Old Testament, they had sacrifice. And every year, Yom Kippur, sacrifice had to take place. Why? To pay the penalty of the sin. When Christ died on the cross, He died once and for all. Never has to be repeated again. We don't have to do that sacrifice again. He paid the penalty for sin once and for all. Therefore, what's Paul saying? Now, consider yourself, and this, this is a great word. The word consider, some translations use the word reckon. I know we got folks here from Minnesota. Do y'all use the word reckon in Minnesota? It's a southern word. Do y'all use it much in Minnesota? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be teaching an SSL class this year at the chapel. It's southern as a second language. 
the first lesson is like on words like y'all and fixing. I was speaking in Chicago one time, and I said y'all, and I really didn't even know it slipped out of my mouth, and the students started laughing, and I was like, what are y'all laughing at? They said, you said y'all. Then they said, are you going to say fixing? <laughs> I said, well, I'm probably fixing to. But you need to understand those words. But here's a great word. This is a great theological word. It's reckon. Paul says, count it, consider it. The word means to take an inventory, to count. It doesn't mean to pretend to be. It means to recognize that you are. Reckon that you're dead to sin and you're alive to God. Take the inventory. Understand the truth of that theological teaching. You're dead to sin, but you're alive to God. Then let's get to the next part of the passage. You're alive in Christ. Building right off of verse 11, Paul says, Therefore, because that's true, he's going to teach you something real practical right here. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're under the law, but not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You're alive to Christ. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies anymore. The word reign means to have rule or dominion over. It would be the master having reign over you. And so Paul's saying, listen, your immortal soul is off limits. But where, Paul, where, where Satan is going to attack you now is in your mortal body. That one day you're going to put off, and you don't have to worry about that anymore. But for right now, we still have these mortal bodies. So he said, don't let sin reign in, in mortal bodies anymore. What's Paul saying? Stop sinning. You don't have to sin anymore. First John chapter 2, verse 1, John says, I've written this to you so that you will not sin. Don't go through life thinking, well, you know, I'm just a sinner. I never liked that phrase. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's who you used to be. It's not you anymore. You're not just a sinner anymore. You're a child of the King. And yes, you've been saved by grace. But the fact you're saved by grace, you don't have to go back and play with the old stuff anymore. So Paul says, don't let it rain in your mortal bodies. It shouldn't rain because it has no right to rain. It's not boss anymore. And that's what, why we have to reckon we're dead to that. It's not my boss anymore. I'm under new ownership. New management has taken over. So don't let it rain in your mortal bodies that you would obey 
It's lust. Listen, the only power sin over, has over you is the power you allow it to have. The power of sin has been broken at the cross. And don't present your members. He's just talking about limbs or parts of your body, your ears, your eyes, your mouth. Those are things that Satan uses, still uses, even in Christians, to sin. I remember when our kids were younger, we would sometimes have friends come over that also had kids about their same age, but they didn't have the same rules that our kids did. You ever had this happen? So our kids knew. We didn't even have to tell them. what They knew certain toys they had to put up. Why? Because these friends were going to abuse them. They would break them before they left. Here's what Paul's saying. Put up Satan's toys. Don't let him play with them anymore. Don't give him room to cause your mortal body to slip back into sin. What does that mean? Let's just be practical. You know where temptation is for you. There are some things that are tempting to me that wouldn't be tempting to you. There are some things that you really struggle with in temptation that for me, not a big deal. I went to Las Vegas one time. Been there a couple times. One time I preached in a place called Needles, California. I had to fly into Las Vegas. And I watched all these people gambling. That was not a temptation for me. The temptation for me was the sports book place where they had a hundred televisions on the wall with every sporting contest in the world on it. I could have sat there, and I did for a couple of hours when I didn't have anything to do. I didn't bet on a game. I didn't waste any money. I just wasted time. But I watched other people sitting there putting dollar coins into slot machines. And, and they didn't just play one machine. They played like ten in a row. And there was a certain rhythm to it. You know, now I think you hit buttons, but back in these days you pulled a little arm. And it was almost like they were annoyed when one of them paid off because it broke their rhythm. So for them, that was a temptation. For me, it wasn't. I'm not going to tell you what my temptations are. But I know this. I know that if I'm not going to yield to the temptation, I need to stay out of those places. It's kind of like the little boy whose dad said, Son, ride your bike to school on the way home from school. Do not stop at that pond that I've told you not to swim in. Little boy still packed his swim trucks just in case. What do you need? You stay out of those places. How do you do that? Well, number one, identify what those places are and have some accountability. Have some friends in your life that you've given the freedom to walk around in your life. That, you've, that you have a, a relationship with them where, where it's okay that you can mess up from time to time. And they're still going to love you. And if you're struggling, you can call them and say, hey, pray for me because I'm really struggling over this. Or if you've messed up, you can say, hey, pray for me. I messed up last week. My favorite definition of the word intimacy is this, in to me see. Guys, there's some other guys you need to have some intimate relationship with that you can, you can share what's going on in your life with. Be honest. Give them a list of seven questions if that's what it takes. Hey, I need you on a weekly basis to ask me what you've been watching on television, what you've been what kind of searches have you done on the Internet? What you've been listening to? What you've been reading? Last question. Have you lied to me about any of this? Girls, same thing. If you're married, guys, your wife ought to be one of your accountability partners. Ladies, your husband ought to be one of your accountability partners. We're, we're, we're acknowledging that Satan still tempts us in our mortal body. 
But we don't want to keep yielding to that. And so we don't put ourselves in places where that's going to be prevalent. If you've got temptation over alcohol, you don't need to go to places where you're going to smell alcohol. If you've got temptations over things that, of the eye that are going to cause you to lust, there are certain movies you don't need to go to. There are certain things on television you don't need to watch. You don't need to just sit there and channel surf necessarily by some channels. Block them so you can't even look at them. If your struggles, things on the Internet. Maybe you need to find an accountability partner that knows what you're looking at on the Internet. And there's programs out there now. Covenant Eyes is one of them where you, you can have an accountability partner that Covenant Eyes will send a monthly report of every website that you visited on your computer and how long you spent there. It gets real quiet when I start talking about this kind of stuff. But all I'm saying is, here's what Paul's saying. Guys, you're still falling back into the old stuff. You don't need to live there anymore. You're allowing a foothold into your mortal body from Satan that is dead. So consider it that way. In fact, consider yourselves alive from the dead and now present your bodies, the members of your body, Present them as instruments of righteousness, not instruments of unrighteousness. The word literally means tool or weapon. Don't present your bodies as a weapon for Satan, but a tool that's usable for God. Out of the same mouth can flow both cursing and blessing. The other thing you need to do is memorize Scripture. If you're struggling in a certain area, memorize Scriptures. When Satan comes and tempts you in that area... Quote Scripture. He hates it when you do that. That's what Jesus did. Remember when Satan tempted Jesus? By the way, is it a sin to be tempted? No. Thank you. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to yield to temptation. There's a verse somewhere about out of the mouth of babes. We just experienced it. You're not under the law anymore. You're under grace. Here's a picture I want you to get from that. When you were under law, it was like a building that you served under. The building has collapsed. And if you're under law, you're helpless. Christ has freed you from that. You're under grace. The picture I want you to see here is a big umbrella of protection. We don't operate under the law anymore. Does that mean that because we're not under the law, we can just sin as much as we want? No, that's what Paul is pointing out twice in this passage. If that is your heart's desire, then you don't know Jesus. If your heart's desire is, well, okay, I'm operating under the umbrella of grace, so I'm just going to sin to my heart's content. Folks, your heart's in the wrong place. It hasn't been surrendered to Christ yet. But the day you come to Christ, He begins a work in you. You've been justified. Now He begins this process of sanctification. And he gives an either-or illustration. He says, either you're serving sin resulting in death or you're serving obedience resulting in righteousness. Catch the point here. If you serve sin, the end of that road is death. If you serve obedience, the flip side of the coin is not life. Obedience doesn't lead to life. What leads to life? Faith in Jesus Christ. And it begins a walk then of obedience. And as you are obedient... It results in righteousness. 
Folks, you were saved the day you came to Christ as a sinner and gave your life to Him. It's not ten years later after you've had a perfect track record. So obedience leads to righteousness. Last point and I'm done. Then the benefit of this freedom. Verses 21 and following. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? What a great question. For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. And the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Another question that Paul asked, what benefit? What was the fruit? That's what the word benefit means. What was the fruit of your life back when you were doing those things that now you're ashamed of? The reason so much sin happens in dark places is because we're ashamed of it and we know better. What benefit were you deriving of those things that you're now ashamed? Listen, the outcome of that was death. But you've now been free, liberated. The liberator has come. Christ has liberated you from that. And the benefit that you derive is sanctification. That is a highfalutin word, isn't it? What does it mean? The root of the word sanctification is the word holy. Hagias in the Greek. This has some endings to it that extends it a little bit more, but it literally means purity. But it comes from the word holiness. God said, be holy as I am holy. The only way you do that is in Christ. You are pronounced that way. And Christ begins a work in you. Paul said, I'm convinced, I'm confident, the one who began this work in me will complete it. The work he began was sanctification, making you pure, making you holy. You can't do it yourself. He doesn't leave you instructions at the beginning of your Christian walk and say, okay, do the best you can. But he begins a work that he promises to complete, and that is he conforms you back to the image of God. He makes you holy. And in verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. And he really kind of goes to a military illustration here. He's used the illustration of slavery. Now he uses the illustration from the military. The wages, literally the rations for a soldier, his stipend or his pay. What you earn from sin is death. Payday is coming someday. And what you earn from sin is death. You can either experience that death in Christ at the cross or one day, ultimately, a death that means you're separated from God for eternity. And then he uses the exact opposite word. The wages of sin is death, but, opposite word, the free gift. It's really just one word in the Greek language. It literally means grace gift. But the free gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wages is what you earn. If you die in your sins, then you experience eternity separated from God. Then you got what you earned. You worked for that. When you come to Christ, you get something you didn't earn. You get something you can't work for. It's got to be offered free. You get something that you do not deserve. Unmerited favor. You get God's grace. Here's the offer. Continuing a life of sin that ultimately leads to death, and death starts now. Or give your life to Christ and receive His eternal life 
And that life begins now. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, what a powerful passage. And yes, Lord, perhaps we've only touched the surface of chapter 6. But thank you for the truth that you have conquered death. And Lord, the offer of eternal life is extended. God, I thank you that it's something I could not work for because I'd never get there if that was the case. But thank you for the death of Jesus Christ on the cross that paid the penalty and broke the power of sin. And so, God, I pray for anybody in this room this morning. Lord, for some who they know you as Lord and Savior, but, God, they're still playing with some of the old stuff. They're still giving footholds to the enemy. Lord, help them. God, help them surrender to you today. And God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, God, I pray today would be the day of their salvation. To come in prayer before a God who loves them and simply say, I recognize that I'm a sinner. And I know that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for that sin. And so today I ask you to become my Savior my Lord, my boss, and to give me that free gift of eternal life. Thank you for your grace in Christ's name.